So hi everybody, my name's Kurt. I'm a State Project Officer at the New South Wales Office of Preventive Health. And with me today, I've got Dr. James Best, who's a GP and Chair of the Child's and Young Person's Specific Interest Network Group, and Joanne Henderson, a Clinical Nurse Consultant in Weight Management at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. Today, we'll be discussing the complexities of managing children who are above a healthy weight, and also discussing one of the family-focused solutions in Go For Fun. So one of the main things that we're wanting to discuss as part of this podcast is the challenges that you'll face as a GP with complex cases and unrealistic expectations, as well as time and also finding appropriate and available treatments for children and families that are above a healthy weight. So what are some of the challenges, James, that you see with children and families? Well, they're many and complex and variable, of course. I think the main thing you mentioned there, Kurt, was time. Of course, with GP work, it's always about managing what you can in that short time that we've got for a, a normal consultation. And I think that what that ends up throwing up is, a, is quite a few barriers to getting these children assessed properly. We know that 25% of Australian children are overweight, are above a healthy weight range. That little mistake I made then is part of the problem. We actually have to also change our language a bit that we're trying to get away from using the terms overweight and obese into above a healthy weight because the emphasis should really be on health and we'll talk about that a bit later. But when I come back to time is something like one in four of children that are coming through our practice are above a healthy weight range. It's hard to remember to think about that and to deal with it and to raise it as an issue. And so I think that we need to change our mindset to have this on our radar because it really is very important from a health point of view. So that we need to think of it. So the GPs need to maybe change their way of thinking a bit. I certainly have had to adapt my practice a bit because of what's happening to our paediatric population. And also then we need to then address what's happening in our patients, you know, the way they're thinking and what they think about it. And, and then also talk about how we're going to actually raise those issues. So just as a brief summary, I think that they're the main issues that come up. Yeah, great. And in terms of a tertiary care perspective, Joe, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing? I think some of the things we're seeing are more related to the fact that a childhood obesity is something that's a fairly new thing in health compared to where it was previously, not very well recognised or not so many children experiencing any issues. So we're all very adept at talking to a family or, or addressing a family with a child that's below a healthy weight, so underweight or malnourished, whichever term you'd like to use. Using the terms above a healthy weight, well above a healthy weight, or below a healthy weight are not there just to make it sound less impressive or anything like that. It's just to make it more relaxed in the community. There's a lot of weight stigma in the community and we're trying to make it addressed more along the lines of we're looking at child health. So looking at weight from any angle or any end of the spectrum is looking towards health and we're health professionals that's what we should be looking at is health. The challenges we have in tertiary care is more along the lines that it's left a little bit too late and it becomes very very challenging to reverse the issues. When you've got three and four year olds that are 30 or 40 or 50 kilo it becomes a very embedded problem with lots of other psychosocial issues and it becomes a lot harder to make changes at that end. So some of the things we'll talk about along the way are looking at whether we can think about getting in there a little bit earlier and how we would go about doing that. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Joe. So what I'm hearing both of you say is that it's it's really important that we actually are challenging or addressing these concerns from the get-go. 
and that there's implications amongst the general health of the, the child and family as well. So you both raised some really, really interesting points around language and I guess terminology. So are there better phrases or wording to be used as part of having those conversations with families? I think the best way of doing that is actually to normalise it, to actually say that thinking about weight is a normal part of looking at a child's health. Just think about it like a blood pressure analogy, that when you see an adult come in and checking their blood pressure, it's kind of a normal thing to do. Or if someone comes in for an eye problem, checking their visual acuity is a normal thing to do. When you see a child, checking their growth parameters is a normal thing to do. And I think that's just what you do. And I think that's kind of the way you sell it. And then if you have an issue, then you can raise it. But I think that sometimes it can be hard to get into that habit. And I think that the main issue is it becomes so important. That's why we really need to change our practice towards that direction. There is a recent study that came out, the Longitudinal Study of Australian Children, that was actually in paediatrics, you know, the number one journal in the world for child health issues. An Australian study, a real big long-term study, and it showed remarkable changes that are happening because of this epidemic of children being above a healthy weight. And over the last 30 years, we've seen populations where we didn't have type 2 diabetes in childhood and now getting that. And in the Aboriginal population, it went up sevenfold over that 30-year period, type 2 diabetes diagnosis in childhood. And in this study, they showed that the metabolic changes that happen in children start happening from as early as two to three years of age. And the actual changes in the body that can be seen from this is there by 11. So, you know, it's visible by 11. So the risk starts at two or three and it's there by 11, which is really, really quite frightening, really. And where are these children going to be when they're 30 and 40 years old? I mean, what sort of health situation? So I think that's why it's become so important. So in terms of language, I think really using that, this is part of being a, a good GP is doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. It sounds as though it's a, a massive and important issue that needs to be raised. I guess the understanding that I have as part of my work is that GPs often perceive it to be a difficult conversation to have. So how can that conversation be normalised? Yeah, certainly something I've heard from other GPs, and I felt myself actually at times, we sort of a bit worried about saying, you know, you've got a child that's clearly, you know, too big, and maybe everyone in the family is like that too, or everyone in that community, a lot of them are like that, you know, so it's kind of like the normal thing, that actually raising that can sort of almost be a bit, you're worried that you're going to offend somebody. Mm. I personally have found that not to be the case, as long as you sell it the right way, as long as you say, we're talking about your child's health, that's why people come to the doctor, you know, so we're talking about your child's health, and I think this is an issue. And that you're not shaming them or anything like that, but you, you're saying, I want to help your child improve their health. And so I think if you use it with the right language, I find nearly all patients are, are fine about it. But you do have to be careful with your language. And Joe, in terms of more broadly, so beyond GPs, in terms of general health professionals, those people involved in the care and welfare of children, how can those difficult conversations relating to weight be overcome in order to provide the duty of care to the children? I think it's very similar to what James is saying in that if we all start to become more normalised in measuring height and weight on a child, not just ad hoc measuring a weight and not relying on our eyes because 
The world is not the same as the world used to be 40 years ago. We don't see size the way we used to see it. You know, going back 40 years, two kilo weight gain was a significant issue to people. Now in adult, it's not uncommon to accept 10 or 15 kilos as a normal weight gain and then going, oh, I probably should do something about it. When I was a lot younger, you would not even consider allowing that much weight gain without trying to do something about it earlier. The thing we're seeing with the children is there's still an exception of the broader look as being normal as well and that there are so many children and that's one way of normalising it is saying that it's a fairly normal thing in the community today but it's affecting the health of our children and the health outcomes of our children. It's not just about weight. If you can get right back to that purpose with people, they can see what you're really on about, that you're not shaming, blaming, anything like that. You're just addressing that it's a health problem that will cause other health problems. And relating back to, again, the fact that the children are getting old people's diseases now just because the advanced weight is making higher pressures on their heart. It's making all sorts of other bits and pieces go skewy and then and they're just not coping the way they used to because they didn't have the same activity levels, they're eating poorer quality nutrition and all of those things are compounding. And it's not just for the children, it's for the adults, it's for the greater world, you know. It's not something that's isolated to a particular culture, it's a general concept. And I look back at old cricket highlights from the 80s and 70s and stuff, you see all the kids in the crowd, they're all skinny. Mm. And so, you know, and if you go to a, a swimming carnival or something like that now, chubby kids at the swimming carnival. And it, it's quite striking because, as you say, what you see with your eyes can sometimes be misleading because we get used to seeing kids that just look heavier. And so we need to do that measuring and actually get it on the chart. And there's another point there about charts. It's not just height and weight. And this is something that I think a lot of GPs need to get in the habit of. And certainly I've had to change my practice is actually talking about BMIs and BMI percentiles. That's the key because the BMI for kids is completely different to BMIs in adults. It's not the same ranges. It's a BMI percentile. And our software does that for us. I think we're going to talk about that in a bit. But are they above the 97th or 99th percentile BMI? And you, sometimes you'll see kids who are way above it. And so this is the way we need to think about it, not just doing the hot weight. And on that, James, if you're looking at a child and you think they're above a healthy weight, they're probably well above a healthy weight because we don't see healthy weight the way it is anymore. We don't see kids that you can actively see their clavicles and ribs with anymore. And they're the kids that are more in the healthy weight range from a quick, you know, glance it's the kids that are well padded that we sort of go oh yeah they still look pretty healthy but they're usually you know well and truly in the overweight category or above a healthy weight and you know I'm switching the two terms around a little I know because I deal with consumers all the time too but like in medical terminology obviously if you're talking with other clinicians the terms overweight and obese are certainly valid it's just to make it a little bit more relaxed in the community and make the clients more accepting of this being just a statement of health rather than a branding of a disease and a dirty or a fat blaming concept it's just a statement of health and we're all aiming for health your child's limping we should have a look at that your child's got a sore on their arm let's have a look at that your child's height and weight together give us their BMI let's have a look at that oh that looks a little bit high let's have an address of that so it all becomes start the same term the same 
lift in your voice the same address. It's it's not anything heightening to be frightened of to the family. It's just another concept. And in saying that, it should be addressed to every family, child, regardless of what their height and weight and their BMI is. Parents want to know. They want to see it plotted. They just die for their blue books to be written in again, but nobody wants to look at them after they're about one and a half or two. And, you know, like they might want to put their immunisations in them, but there's not that regular growth assessment that goes in there anymore. I'm not even sure. Is the four or five-year-old growth check still happening, James? Well, the Healthy Kids check, the four-year-old one, was funding for that was taken away, but there is still a checkup in many of the child health records for that age group. Often it, it does slip by the wayside. It's certainly in infancy is where it's mostly done. Yeah, fair enough. So a lot of the normalisation occurs because it's part of routine practice. And I guess even beyond that, somewhat normalised to see children that are above a healthy weight. As you said, James, there's recent statistics showing that one in four are above a healthy weight. So it's not necessarily on the family's radar either because it is so normalised for them. Is there something that GPs should prepare themselves with in order to have those conversations with families? Yes, look, what we should be prepared is to be astonished about what patients think about this sort of stuff. Their health literacy when it comes to things like diet and exercise in children is so often really poor. And I'm actually quite astonished. I work in an area, low socioeconomic area, that's got a lot of children who are overweight. When they start talking about what they eat and what they do for exercise, and stuff, I'm actually quite gobsmacked sometimes. You know, the soft drinks and the takeaway and the fried food and, and all this sort of thing. And people just don't know. And, you know, you say, well, we're actually, children should be drinking water and not much else. And they go, really? You know, the juice has got a lot of calories and the soft drink's got this many teaspoons of sugar and all that sort of stuff. It, just, they just don't know. And I find that quite astonishing. So, But let's not underestimate the power of advertising too and, and the ads that were gone in the last 10 years, how wonderful juice is and pure squeezed juice and how awesome it is. And so let's not underestimate the fact that the families are not going out there with the intention to give their children something wrong in, in many cases too. There are lots of families we treat that the diet in recording looks not too bad. The sizes are big, but the children have a lot of juice as well. They have too much milk. They have too much of this. So it's not a hideously horrible diet of Maccas and soft drink all the time. There are many variations on that. And sometimes it just literally that this child does do absolutely no activity. When you think of cultures where they carry the child's school bag to school for them and the child just idles along behind them and the child's not even like being very active to get to school, they might get dropped at the doorstep for perceptions of safety and all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of shift in our lifestyle that is directly affecting these things and that includes the advertising we receive and it's just reinstalling the healthy messages and re-educating on things that have been perceived to be good but aren't necessarily good too. Yeah, I think that what do kids do now on weekends and afternoons after school is they sit down on a screen somewhere mm. and, as you say, inactive. They're not moving. And, you know, when they used to be running around a park or, or playing sport or whatever, once again, the, the literacy, you know, that people just go, oh, I didn't think it was an issue. And I was too worried about them walking down the road to the park and that sort of stuff. So, 
And we've also got the change in the fact that it's a, a much more diverse multiculturalism in our society in that we've got refugees that are coming from lots of poverty, lots of war and famine, and they're coming to a land of plenty. Of course, they're going to give their children everything they can to make them have all the things that they missed out on and they don't want to deprive them of anything. So, of course, those families are going to be very high risk. And, you know, then you've got the the language barriers of many families that haven't got good command of English yet. They don't know some of the things they're eating are not good because they have no idea what they're really eating. Everyone else eats it, so, you know, I'm going to eat it. Krispy Kremes are good because everyone else eats them in my neighbourhood. We will eat them. I had a Malaysian family that had very good English and they were bringing one child to our clinic who was ridiculously morbidly obese to the point where he had to have orthopaedic surgery at three to straighten his legs so was so badly bowed and we caught them out in the back of the hospital one day and I said oh what are you feeding the kids there is oh we bought them some more Krispy Kremes they'd run out so they'd bought in two dozen <laughs> Krispy Kremes for the four kids so three of them were visiting, the siblings were visiting, because they thought that that was a good thing to give them. And the father was horrified when I explained to him that it was a poor choice. So we really have to be careful we aren't doing a blame game too, which is what I'm trying to say. I think that for our kids to not get to that level, it really starts at our level years prior to that. You know, we should be letting our patients know that this is an issue. Yeah. Because um, you must see that, you know, full-on cases like that frequently, Joe, I imagine. And I've had one kid go up to Westmead for that sort of stuff. But I see hundreds of kids that I want to steer away from that direction. It's a classic of early intervention. If somebody is not aware their child is above a healthy weight, they aren't going to actively do anything about it. If you can start to track the kids that their percentile chance are starting to skew and become vertical or like 45 degree and above plotting on a growth chart. So it's not it's not just a single recording that matters. The recording of growth needs to be happening over time and it's the crossing of the centile lines we need to be watching for. So kids that have got a marked increase or decrease, once they cross the centile, you've got to think, well, what's going on? here how can we improve this situation what's going on with their health because of this and if you grab it early redirect it you can often make a lot of change early just by simply telling the parents that the child is above a healthy weight or we're concerned because their weight is tracking upwards their growth is tracking upwards at a much more marked level than the norms of their age group. And tracking it early can make the parent identify with that rather than coming to us with a seven or eight-year-old who's been well above a healthy weight since they were born and nobody having it addressed it. You know, obviously somebody's probably said it along the way, but there's not a repeated performance of that. So nobody's batting in the same field as the family repeatedly coming back saying I'm just not comfortable that their growth is tracking at a good level and growth is a great term because parents want to know their child is growing normal. And in terms of what you use when you're having these discussions with families you both keep referring to percentile growth charts so is there anything else that's in your kit that you refer to or your your toolkit in having these conversations with children and families? We now have them on our software, or in some software anyway. I use best practice and clinical drop-down, there's a percentile chance. 
There's also a GoFund fund referral, which we're going to talk about later. The percentile growth charts uh, are under clinical drop-down list in best practice. I imagine there'll be equivalent in medical director as well and, and other software. So it's there and it calculates the VMI percentile for you. So um, use it is what I'm saying. Now, the other tool is our nurses. More than two thirds of practices have nurses in their practice now. And many practices have several nurses, depending on the size. And just getting the nurse to do the measuring, you know, and that's what the public kind of expects nurses to do. So, you know, I think that's a really good tool to use. And expanding on that, Jones, normal nurse stuff is also addressing things with people. So it's not unreasonable, depending on your practice, whether the nurse practitioner, if you've got one, whatever your nurse practice nurse, sorry, it's not a nurse practitioner, that the practice nurse doesn't get the information and have it plotted and give it to the family and say, go and have a chat to the doctor about this. Doctor wants to discuss this with you or here's their height and weight. I've plotted that. That's called their BMI. This is where they sit on a chart. Just wanted you to make you know they're a little bit above a healthy weight at this stage. The doctor will talk to you about it some more. It's already broken the ice. And once it's broken, they get used to seeing all those sorts of things. And that's just dependent on the practice, obviously, and the time and, and the availability of staff. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Even having the nurse having the conversation sometimes as well. You know, just like they do with old people when they're doing their health assessments, you know, about lifestyle stuff and are you driving and who's looking after the, you know, the activities of daily living and all that sort of stuff. Mm. It's quite normal for a nurse to be having a conversation about lifestyle stuff with kids. So definitely a good resource, depending on the practice setup. That's just your basic discussion, which is where James and I are coming from. But then obviously what we're sort of here to give you a little bit more on is where to go from there too. And, you know, once the family have got that and they're going to go, well, well, where do we go from here? What do we do from here? So it's no problem to start with basic things, but keep it really simple. Just start with the drinks to start with. Don't go into the full nutrition history because you won't want to hear what they're eating anyway most of the time and you may not be equipped to deal with that anyway. At the end of the day, you can't change 500 things at once. So start with the drinks. What drinks does your child have? And make sure you get very explicit with how you ask those questions in the terms of do they have poppers? So don't just ask if they have juice because poppers aren't juice. Didn't know if you knew that. But you have to use some of those terms. But even if you don't go to that depth, do they drink water? Do they drink tap water? Do they drink bottled water? How much water do they drink? If they drink bottled or in a drink bottle, how often do they fill it up in a daytime? And those sorts of lines, there are are a lot of kids that don't drink much at all of anything, but trying to get them to, you know, really focus on getting water as the main drink, as the main stay of their diet is a big change for a lot of people. And it can make a lot of difference just making that one change. Yeah. Some of the messages here are pretty simple. And you're not necessarily going to be sending every kid that you have weight concerns about to a dietitian and an exercise physiologist and all that sort of stuff. You know, so even those simple conversations, those brief intervention, if you like, of, as you said, Joe, you know, just talking about the a simple thing like, you know, soft drink is bad and juices got lots of calories. Simple messages like that can actually make a significant starting point. And you, might, you might need to build on that with some families, but sometimes messages can start out, you know, at a very simple level. And that's really where the crust of what we're here for today is to really mainly make sure that, that everyone realises that there's a wonderful service in New South Wales Health and it's free and it's called Go For Fun and it's accessible to most families, um, either online or face-to-face. Oh, well, obviously not face-to-face at the moment with COVID. It normally is. <laughs> 
let's go back to the other world we lived in. But, you know, we're working on that. But, you know, that that's a, a great resource for anybody who you've even contemplated that they're slightly above a healthy weight and you just want to get them back into the understanding of what normalcy is. Yeah, I guess one of the benefits of Go for Fun is it is basically back to basics. I know that, James, you're discussing the health literacy. A lot of families, I guess, don't have the fundamental basics around what children should be having in terms of water intake, fruits, vegetables, and how to do exercise in a fun and engaging way that's not boot camp or formalized competitive sports because that doesn't appeal to everybody. I feel as though that's one of the benefits of Go for Fun is that it is teaching the foundations for everybody. I think it's a great service. You know, it's free and it's from the government. Let's grab it. And it's local and it's easy. This is probably one of the main things I want to talk to the GP audience today is all you have to do is you get this really simple form that's on our software that preload the data, you print it out and you either fax or, or email it. And it's done and they get this great service and it just builds on what you've been doing in your brief intervention. So for the right kids, you know, this can be a really useful thing to do as a GP. It's a good service for families that you can start with your basics and especially if you don't have a lot of background yourself or a lot of time in your practice, which is something we're used to. And the other thing we, we do know is there are a lot of families that are not consistent with going to a regular GP. They may just call into someone once every two or three years because the kid's got an extremely snotty nose they can't get rid of this time. And it may not be the same GP next time. So it's really important to try and get a quality session while you're there of other things if you can. Some of the barriers you might have with those families are going to be, you know, well, you know, we're only seeing you once. Why would you care? Rah, rah, rah. And you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. That's fine. Some people will become more uncomfortable or others will be comfortable with the message. At the end of the day, if you've got something that's free for them, that they can have the opportunity to be engaged within the community later on, they get a phone call follow up about it. And then it may be that that's also another impression to the family that you've identified there's a problem now, someone's following it up, oh dear, we should probably do something about it. And it can reinforce that need to do something about the child's health. And in terms of actually families being receptive of, I guess, having that conversation, James, are families aware or what is their reaction to having those growth assessments being done? Before... I started doing this more and more. I had the perception in my own brain that there would be a problem. There hasn't been. If you sell it as a health thing, then, you know, they're quite fine about it. They're just, yeah, sure, I want to do that, you know. I really haven't had any resistance. It's so easy. I mean, so often when we have a problem identified, say, for example, you've got a kid who's worried about middle ear effusions and you want to get them to see an ENT surgeon it costs $200 and three months of waiting and all that sort of thing. And so many times when we want to do something that needs to be done, it's actually quite difficult. And this one, it's not. So when you approach it the right way, I think it's, it generally lands very well. And you've got this really easy pathway for them to follow up if you feel they need it. So, you know, I think that's great. There's also many times where you receive a child into a GP practice, and I can give you some great examples. The kids that have got the buried penises, the fat padding, and it's because of obesity. You know, they're, they're well above a healthy weight. It's a perfect lead-in to connect health and weight and lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. You know, the child that's just generally 
tired and you can't find anything on results and all that sort of stuff and you say well this also could be contributing and you can have little inroads from other parts of your clinical assessment to easily adapt that back to growth and development and healthy growth and development and it's a good way just to bring it in but also it's just you know that the kids that are a bit saddy poos or get a bit bullied at school and all those sorts of things if you've got a family that aren't sure you know well you're saying my child's fat you very easily come back with that say no I'm not concerned about your child being fat I'm just concerned about your child being healthy and it just it's dissipated immediately they have no comeback to that I've never had anyone even I mean you do get the odd person that gets agitated from the reception of, of information that I want to hear but they're very quickly calm when you say that and you say as a health professional I'm looking at their growth and development I'm making sure they are remaining healthy and no parent doesn't want their child to be healthy. So there isn't a lot of comeback on it. And in terms of why, I guess, weight is such a big issue, there's so many implications both short-term and long-term, and it's not necessarily the family's focus when coming in to see GPs. It's often the implications of being above a healthy weight that impact other aspects of the child's life. And in treating, I guess, their growth and their health from a weight perspective, you're also treating the other issues as well. So, James, what are some of the short-term and long-term impacts you're trying to avoid by treating a child's growth and health? There's physical things like sleep apnea and fatigue, as you mentioned, Joe, but also the psychological aspects and self-image and getting bullied, as was mentioned. You know, they're the sort of things that the kids and their families worry about. And long-term, obviously, diabetes, but there's so many, you know, cardiovascular, the, the whole metabolic picture. And that's not on families' radars, I don't think. Well, not, not often, not on family's radars. And so mentioning that, I think, you know, like it makes people sit up. Everyone sort of kind of knows that diabetes is really bad. But the fact that we're seeing diabetes in children now is just astonishing. And that certainly isn't on people's radars. Maybe not even on a lot of doctors' radars. So these are the sort of things you can raise. But I think there are the more immediate things. Like no one wants their kid to be getting teased about being overweight at school and stuff. I think one of the easy buy-ins with the younger ones, particularly like in the primary school kids, is you ask the parent what size clothes the child is wearing. And then you say, do you have to get that in the children's wear or in the adults section? And you'll win. You know, if they're obviously a bigger child and they say the adults section, you say that must be really hard for them to be wearing adult clothes and not being able to wear the pretty little girl dresses to the parties and things like that. And the little boys that just will not go out swimming because they don't want anyone to see them in a surf shirt. Yeah, or, or they dread the PE class or the carnival. I've had certainly seen that where kids are really stressed about the fact that they're going to have to run the athletic carnival. And, and some of it is they just want to keep up with their peers. Yeah. It's not that they care that they're bigger or anything like that per se. It's just they want to keep up with their buddies and they can't, you know. Yeah. I think one of the major things that I've always been conscious of uh, being a gopher fun facilitator many years ago and now in this role, I find that parents come into the gopher fun program not necessarily because they have concerns about their weight or that, but it's around the engagement with peers that they want to not be left behind. They want to participate. They want their child to participate in the physical activity at school and, and make friends and the, the psychosocial aspect of things. And the one thing that was really interesting to me was the recent study by the AIHW was that it's been linked to poorer educational outcomes as well too. 
so it's going beyond physical and psychosocial, but it's actually having impact into education as well too, which I found fascinating. Certainly some of the children that we treat, even, you know, five and six-year-olds that have got profound sleep apnea that's untreated and undiagnosed, these kids can't even stay awake all day. Like they can't sit in the classroom and get through a class. We had a girl in on Monday. She's 14 now, but she was 12 when we had the sleep test done and we lost her to contact. Finally got back in touch and said, you've got to come in urgently on Monday because knowing that everything would have escalated. At the time of her sleep study two years ago, she was having 57 apneas an hour and she was still untreated. And, and, you know, those sorts of things are out there in the community and those sorts of things are silently going through. How can you function with that little amount of, of normal productive sleep? And sleep apnea is so underdiagnosed. You know, so it's one of those things that if you, you realise about the BMI is where it is and then you go, oh, maybe I need to think about sleep apnea in this child and you ask the parent, like, oh, yeah, she snores like anything. You know, so um, and she's tired all day and... And even the non-snorers, even the seven and eight-year-olds that are above a healthy weight that are still having nocturnal enuresis nearly every night, and you have to think, is this something to do with the weight as well? Is there some implication from that in sleep apnea and is it worth investigating? Ask the screening questions at least. It might not just be that they're a late dry kid you know it might be something else so so some little things that might not seem obvious in the community but you know you ask the question do they wet the bed and all of a sudden the floods of the family's eyes all come on because they realize there is something else in this and you know do they have frequent constipation and Mm. so many subtle effects that can happen to the child because they're well above a healthy weight And, and these are all common things too aren't they Constipation, enuresis, sleep apnea, you know, the bullying, you know, these are common things, you know. Just have to do the jigsaw puzzle every now and then and make sure you've connected all the dots. That's a good way of explaining it. I think one of the major barriers that we've identified as part of our scoping work is that uh, GPs and health professionals are less likely to engage in having the conversation around weight and growth because they're actually not sure of what is available to help and support these families and children. So are there any specific support services that are already available for children and families that broadly GPs should be aware of, apart from a go for fun? So obviously there's specialist tertiary centres such as the one, Joe, that you're working at. Yeah. Yeah, but from a GP perspective, great as I'm sure Joe's clinic is, that's just a tiny fraction. And you're right at seeing the real severe cases. And I suppose from a GP point of view, it's rare that we end up accessing that sort of level of service. And so you might have things through your local health district and health pathways. And certainly a lot of GPs are getting more and more used to using that sort of approach. What you've got locally in terms of people like dietitians and and exercise physiologists and such, yeah, it really comes locally dependent. But the go for fun, obviously, it is local and it's free and it's there. So I find that a very important part of, of what we can provide. I'd have to say that, that if you looked at a, a flow chart and a step process, say, of what you should do, the first thing you should do is you should introduce the growth and development of the child every visit and you should have an outcome 
focus on that. So you should look at where they were tracking last time, where they're tracking this time. You should be addressing it regularly with the family and introducing small changes each time if it's required. Not forgetting that a child who's got healthy growth still probably should be drinking water as their main drink and should be having a healthy, nutritious diet. So it doesn't hurt to have that included if you feel you wanted to include that in your normal conversation. Now these I'm talking real snappy, quick things that aren't going to take a lot of time in your consult and then as you're further on from there as it becomes more complex or a child is further above a healthy weight or well above a healthy weight introducing solution-based clinicians so you may have a child that's getting bullied may have a child that's got anxiety may have a family that are falling apart starting to introduce the concepts of clinical psychology support with a care plan so it's not as expensive all those different factors coming in there never overlook the parental anxiety and depression because that will often be a big causative factor of poor nutrition and overweight and and obesity in in a family as much as poverty would have once been the big undernourished factor it's often an overnourished factor too now and so you're looking at, at holistic what you've got in front of you the child is not the provider of the nutrition the child is the receiver of the nutrition where's it coming from why is it coming in like that is it knowledge is it background of the family is it psychosocial support required for the parents we will get many a family in here that we will not actually treat weight per se in the child we will treat psychosocial problems and we'll do that for months before we even introduce them to the dietitian because it's not going to make change on the family until they've got that level of confidence in themselves if you've got a mum that doesn't sleep at night there's got to be something going on there she's going to be on edge all day and if the kids are screaming at her and saying I don't care what you've cooked me I want my hot chips she'll get the hot chips and fair enough too you know let's look at it in the bigger picture I reckon I'd be doing it too and it's just the way the world sits is you've got to survive and it's how do you survive in this world we live in now so making sure that the whole picture is covered I mean you don't have to sit down and screen every member of the family but you know just be aware there might be other things going on and have a look at that so you've got your local clean psychs you've got your local dietetics you've got your local community nurses don't forget you're not two-year-olds mothers of second and further on children don't bother going to the child health clinics because they reckon they know what they're doing. So encouraging them back into those avenues, there are many children that will still have bottles at night at four and five and six years old and still be having two or three bottles of milk overnight. And they're wondering why the child's low iron and gaining weight. All those things that a community nurse and a child and family health nurse will pick up straight away. They'll look at it and they'll know exactly what's going on. So it doesn't have to be the resource of the GP in the room that's doing all of that, but there are people out there that you can use regardless of what community you live in. There are contacts you can get on to. There's heaps of online stuff now because of COVID too. There is so much you can access and the provision of the clinical psychology and all that is much greater than what it was because of the situation we're in at the moment. I think it's interesting what you said there before about being patient-centred, you know, what what is doable, because you can't just sit there on top of the mountain and say, this is the diet your child should have, and you need to cut out these seven things. You know, you've got to ask the parent or the carer, what do you think is achievable here? What would you feel comfortable in not providing for your child and that sort of thing? Sometimes it might be they don't, don't know, but sometimes it might be it's just too hard. So just finding out where they're coming from in terms of 
behaviour change. It's really basic motivational interviewing principles. Isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. You're trying to change behaviour. And there are really good level of very quality resources on the Healthy Kids for Professionals website, which is another New South Wales health initiative that we've developed and it's done through most of the child obesity clinics that are around the state, which there aren't many of us, but we've all got together and put together all the resources on there. So there are handouts, there's multilingual handouts and things like that that have just got basic health messages. You know, water is the main drink two hours of activity a day, that sort of stuff. Simple stuff if you wanted any of that sort of thing too. And there are video scenarios that help with education professionals in learning what they want to do along the way too. Lots of resources there, but 100% I'm going through referrals today. Every patient I have that is between 7 and 13 years of age, I mean, I've only got what I get on a referral, but if the child doesn't look like they're very intellectually delayed or have any other inhabitants to them from going to go for fun, is referred to go for fun. On that, I don't just give a brochure to someone. I give them a brochure to tell them I'm doing it and I make the referral myself. And I, I would recommend that any health professional that wants the family to be involved in this program does that. People taking a brochure home just don't pick it up. You might get, you know, one in 10 that will pick it up. When I started doing the referrals myself, my uptake for my patients in clinic is now probably about 90% in difference to 1%. It makes a lot of difference. And I have families say to me, oh, we can't start your clinic yet because we're too busy with go for fun at the moment. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Good, you're doing something. You're doing something. And I say, when do you go for fun finish? And they say, oh, week 10 of term two. And I go, okay, well, we'd like you to come in for an assessment on week eight of term two (laughs) so we can grab that momentum and keep going with it. Chronic relapsing disease, obesity is, and it, it will go up and down in a family. You don't expect change, finish, done. It's not one cause of antibiotics that's cured. It doesn't work like that. So if you can provide a community program like Go for Fun to a family and they get that for 10 weeks and you jump on the end of that and, and maybe then get them into a, a dietitian after that. So while they're waiting for the dietitian, they could be doing their, their Go for Fun program. You've already got change management happening there. You've already got them thinking about it. It's not just for the child, it's for the parent too. So everybody's learning and everybody's making change. And while they're on that, hey, get the parent into the Get Healthy program too. It's another free one they can get. Give them all the freebies. They love freebies. Anything that's free, give it to them. And, you know, then you might be able to throw in a couple of the costy ones along the way too with more individualised education for the family so that they will then see the benefit of these other bits as well because then it's more tailored to their needs and exacted for them. And because they've already got a bit of motivation going, they're more likely to take on change and it's more likely to have an effect long term. So you really have to think in children when there is someone who's above a healthy weight in the household, it has to be whole of family change. It cannot be individualised to the child. Whoever's in charge does the shopping. A child under 14 would not do the shopping, right? There's no way they'd be doing the shopping. They're not bringing the food in the house. Of course, they're influencing what's coming in the house. But if the parent is then supported along the way, they are more likely to be able to make the changes in the household. Can I just get Kurt to explain to our GP audience about Go for Fun? Because some of them might not know. 
So Go For Fun has been running statewide in New South Wales since 2011. It was originally adapted from the UK version of the MEND program, which included clinical psychologists and dietetic intervention for children that are above a healthy weight. So through multiple revisions and adjustments, we've actually updated it for the New South Wales community setting. So as I said, it's been running since 2011, and that's been the regular Go For Fun program. We've made a couple of adaptations in the past couple of years. So we actually have a Aboriginal-specific program and a program delivered online or virtually, which is Go For Fun Online. The programs are all quite similar in, in the sense that they the, the face-to-face versions, Go For Fun and Aboriginal Go For Fun, run for two hours after school across the 10-week program. In those two hours, children and their parents and carers participate together. So as we're saying, the intervention around growth isn't solely focused on children. It's part of that family unit as well too. So that's why Go For Fun is tailored or delivered in that way. So the first hour is children and families participating in interactive activities around nutrition and basic education on physical activity. And then the second hour, kids go off with uh, one of our trained and qualified health and community professionals to play physical activity like games, whilst parents and carers then have facilitated discussions around basic behaviour change principles. So the program comes with free resources. As I said, it's delivered by trained and qualified community professionals. So it is localised as well too. So it's local community, local leaders, local health professionals delivering these sessions. So there's that element of engagement and peer support. And as part of that, we see these massive changes, statistically significant changes over a 10-week course of the program. So although it's a short period of time, we see the trajectory of behaviours around weight adjust. So we actually see improvements on BMI and waist circumference. We see improved recovery heart rates as well. We see families or children being more physically active, time spent being physically active, and reduced sedentary time as well too. There's obviously, of course, increased intake of fruits and vegetables and water. And as we say, we were saying before, sugary drinks is often the big one. So we see reduced intake of sugary drinks, takeaway, confectionery, and we also have improvements in self-esteem, which is massive within a 10-week program to have all of those outcomes. So it's it's completely free. It's available across the state. And one of the major recent changes in the last couple of years has been the delivery of it online. So that's when families can participate from the comfort of their own home. And that's great that you got that up and going before COVID came along. We've been rolling out statewide for online since 2018 and collectively across Aboriginal Go For Fun and Go For Fun Online, we've actually had over 15,000 participants in the program, which is great to see. And I guess the fundamental principles of it are based on basics. So what are the five food groups? What is fat? What is sugar? Where is it found? We teach basic things such as label reading and there's a supermarket tour and the kids just absolutely love coming because they make new friends they interact with other people that have the same sort of issues and concerns that they do. And as I said, completely free. Families love it. It's great. Can you just also ask about the COVID situation now? Is There is no face-to-face with it at the moment or is it coming back? Or 
Uh, so at the moment, the face-to-face programs are suspended. However, we still have Go For Fun Online being delivered across the state. So you can still refer families and families can still participate just in the online version. If they do have a preference to participate in the face-to-face, their details will be taken and they'll be updated once we do return to normal pending COVID restrictions. Yeah. Yeah, cool. The other wonderful thing that I've found with having Go For Fun Online is when you've got a child that's got a physical disability but not a mental disability. For example, a child in a wheelchair or that may have like a bit of cerebral palsy or whatever but not have any mental delays, they can do the online program with their parents and still get the benefit of the program where it's a lot more challenging them to participate in a group program in the community where it's a little bit more difficult for their mobility. So it's been really good from that point of view too. And Joe, have you had any feedback from families from participating in Go for Fun? I've never had negative feedback, <laughs> which is really good. Obviously, there's some that just don't complete it, and that's just the nature of any beast. But I've had many families that think it's great fun and they've done really well while they're in there. You know, the frequency as well as the key factor with presenting any change to someone. You're coming back weekly, you're setting little goals, you're giving reinforcement, and they're enjoying it. And I think the parents are enjoying the fact that they could have time just with the other parents and it normalises for them so they're not feeling like they're the odd man out anymore. So what can health professionals and GPs expect when they make a referral to Go For Fun? So the family get contacted from Go For Fun and certainly if there's any missing data or whatever, I've, I've had contact back and said, look, we haven't been able to get through on that number. Do you have another number? So they'll follow up with you as well. But along the way, you get progress of the family report and you get a completion report on the outcomes for that family too. So you get a, a document that gives you all that information about the family, which is really useful. I always sit down very interested to have a little read at how they're gone and where they're gone. So it's nice to see. I think from a Go For Fun perspective, we're always really conscious of keeping the GPs and the people involved in the care of the family up to date with the family's progress. The program has been developed in order to be complementary to GP care and health professional care. So it does teach those basics, is aligned with NHMRC guidelines for treatment of childhood overweight and obesity and is delivered by trained health and professional staff so we're conscious of it being embedded into the family's care as well in order to progress the family through that journey as well so we are really conscious of informing of the outcome of participation those reports that go to the gps also go to the families and they love seeing the the changes as well they're aware that it's only a 10-week program but in order to change the trajectory of the child's growth it just needs that little bit of a change and they're on the right path or at least tracking better than what they were and that's i guess our aim within the 10-week period of time one thing that we always say in the weight management service is if we can't get the trajectory to go down, let's just get it to go horizontal. If we can get it flattened, we're doing a lot better than where it was going before. So any little change can make a lot of change in the future outcome for a child. That's what the important part is, is the outcome for the child in the end. And James, in terms of making referral into the program, why should GPs be continually doing this as part of routine care? We know that this is a big deal. We know that it's common. We know that it affects all sorts of different health outcomes for that child, both short-term and long-term. And we've got this easy-to-use resource that families generally get a lot out of, and you get positive feedback, as we just heard from Joe. 
you know, why not? That to me is it's a bit of a no-brainer. It's just something that we need to really get in the habit of doing. I think from a GP's point of view that if you're very time limited in your practice, which most GPs are, if you can have those basic messages delivered, a lot of the stuff that are delivered through a Go For Fun program or even from any nutrition program when you're starting out, you'll know from your GP practice it's just basic stuff. Drink water, you know. <laughs> get out and move more it's really basic stuff but it takes time it takes more time to keep going over that again and again and again if you can get a family to engage in something like go for fun which is really convenient it's in their local government area when it's face to face again you know it might be as far as the local gym to go to so it's not far from home it's after school or it's on the weekend it's a fun environment. It's non-judgmental. The kids enjoy it. The parents enjoy it. And they commit to it. I have families that don't ever engage well with my clinic but go to Go For Fun. And they'll do it every week of the Go For Fun program. And it's not necessarily that they enjoy that better than what we're doing or anything like that. But I think it's probably that it's just so convenient because when you work in, in a practice or a, a health service that provides business hours, operations, it's really not very convenient for a family either. And the convenience of having the, the flexibility of time is, is a lot better for them too. And they're getting all those basic messages delivered and reinforced and they're getting recipes and they're getting to muck around with you know fruit kebab sticks and play games with people and they're getting male role models some of the kids have never had male role models and they're getting female role models and they may never had a female role model and it's just giving support and ongoing support for all of them i think that generally you know if you're able to do this for your patients you know they're going to like you for it and so it's going to reinforce that doctor patient relationship that, you know, you're the sort of GP who managed to figure this out for them and put them in the right direction here. I think that it's definitely a, a good thing to do from a GP point of view. It's a nice positive message to deliver instead of negative messages like you're sick, you're sick, you're sick. It's like, let's look at your health. Mm. It's offering them a solution to a degree. It's going to add rapport to that relationship. In terms of accountability from a GP, does referring them to go for fun add to that dynamic at all? Well, yeah, I think that if I go to that effort of doing the form and sending it off and being involved in it, knowing that I'm also going to get feedback and stuff as well. I think that that will make it more of a thing for the patient. You know, my GP kind of wanted me to do this. He's gone to that effort. I, I better get involved rather than just self-referral. I think that it's going to be more powerful. Yeah, we often find that those that are participating from a referral from a GP are more motivated. They have that support around them as well too so they're more inclined to participate more thoroughly through the program as well too which is which is ticking off the boxes for everybody in terms of making that referral what are the solutions or options available to you as a gp well i usually just email it. so it's a pretty simple form to fill out talk to the patient as well and try and set it up and say this is what it's about this is what i've heard from other people about it and a lot of the messages that i might have been talking about like for example, the soft drink and stuff like that, you know that they're just going to be reinforced. And it's in your PHN pathways too, isn't it, James? That's right. It's on the form. You fax or email and, you know, it's not hard. You've got to have the height and weight, I think, on there, which you should anyway, <laughs> and contact <laughs> details and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's not hard. But usually I, I preempt it with some selling of it and also, you know, some basic messages that I know are just going to be reinforced. 
Fantastic. So it is available through the medical director best practice in our CommuniCare software. And as you say, you can fax the referral form. It is housed on the Healthy Kids for Professional website, Joe. I know you had mentioned that as a great way or resource for health professionals to utilize. It goes through assessing and advising patients as part of that growth assessment journey. And there is that centralized phone number that if you do have any questions as a health professional or GP that you can call up. So that's the one 800 780-900 number, or you can visit goforfun.com.au to get more information, including resources to provide to your patients to encourage them to participate in the program when you make that referral as well. And you can refer from the GoForFun website too if you want to. It's just a direct online referral. And Joe, you're highly skilled at that. So you use the bulk referral form, don't you? Yes, I do. But then I do have a lot to refer, obviously, because all my children are well above a healthy weight in my clinic. So I will use a bulk referral form, which I wouldn't expect most GPs to be referring from. But you might have a family of two or three kids coming in and you might sort of go, well, am I going to fill that in for each child through Beck's practice or is it quicker for me to go on and do it as one family through the website and do it that way? And you could do it either way. Go for fun, I'm pretty happy with both. We're happy and willing and ready and waiting to receive all your referrals. I should just mention that when those referrals are sent through, our centralised service team will get back to the family and make contact with them, but also provide an outcome of that referral to the health professionals within a period of 10 days. So just engaging them, the whole care team are part of that go for fun journey as well which I think is very very important and that's something that we've been trying to focus on of late adding back into the care that community professionals provide so I think it's great that we're doing that. I think the other one thing about referring though is is really to be aware that you must tell the family you're doing it and make sure they know that they're going to get a call from someone otherwise they can get a little bit narky on the phone to strangers or not pick up calls and all sorts of fun things like that so just make sure that they know what it's about a little bit and that somebody will be calling them and they'll run through it a bit more with them and generally speaking I haven't had particularly any problem with anyone and most of my referrals are coming in cold off patients I've never met and may never meet so they're getting a lot of contact from me before I refer them to go for fun and then they get a call by then they'll have received a brochure from me and they'll pretty much know what's going on so it's a good way through it but from a GP's perspective they're in front of you and just give them a quick rundown on it and they're pretty happy to do it. So we've covered a lot today. So we've gone through what the barriers to conversation were, what the family's perception and issues are, how to communicate growth assessments to children and families, and then obviously the referral to appropriate and available programs in New South Wales. And I really want to thank both of you for taking the time to chat through those with me and look forward to receiving more referrals from both of you. Hopefully put Joe's clinic largely out of business eventually. That'd be really nice. (laughs) No, it's been lovely. Thank you very much. It's good to have the perspective from both levels of care too, which is good for anybody to hear. But yes, start at the beginning and finish at the end. Hopefully finish at our clinic. Don't start at our clinic. Yep. Thank you very much.